This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Warden Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Whole crew today, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can be also. Give us a ring or hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyball is our handle there. You can send questions, observations, complaints, whatever you'd like. Rolling into our second guest segment, we're delighted to have back on the show Dan Altman. Dan is the founder of North Yard Analytics, a consultancy focused on soccer. He's a former academic. In fact, he probably still holds a position, an affiliation with Stern. That's the business school at NYU. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be back. Where are you calling in from today, Dan? Brooklyn, New York. All right. Well, appreciate your making time for us. Can you give us a little bit of background again? It's been long enough that our listeners may not remember how you got into this business. You wandered at some point from Harvard and the world of economics to soccer, and not just a little bit. I mean, you're doing a lot of work in soccer analytics, and we're curious how that came to be. Sure. I mean, I, I started out as an economist. I got my Ph.D. in economics, and I went on to do a lot of different jobs as an economist for the next 15 years. I was a government economic advisor. I was a journalist. I was a strategic consultant. Uh, I, I was an academic as, as well at Stern, where I taught courses on global macroeconomic forecasting. Uh, and then after about 15 years, I kind of got bored and decided I wanted to do something a little different. Um, so uh, I actually dropped a book contract that I had at the time and decided to buy some data for soccer instead. And um, Played around with the data, got some interesting results, and reached out to some clubs. Uh, one of those clubs slash organizations was City Football Group, which became my first and eventually biggest client. Um, they own Manchester City Football Club and many others around the world. And so I started a consulting firm, and uh, a few years after that, I was asked to work in-house by an ownership group, so I got the experience of working inside a couple of clubs. Uh, and now, recently liberated, uh, I've got a couple other things going Free on, agent. including trying to uh, buy a club. Ah, well, that's good fun. That uh, we got a little, you got a little taste of it on the inside, and you liked it, huh? Well, I, it gave me the education that I think I needed to to really know how these organizations operate. And mm-hmm. I think one of the best ways to monetize a really powerful sports analytics platform is to actually own a club right. uh, because otherwise you can't be sure that you're going to be able to implement these things to their full potential. Yeah, we talk about that tension all the time. You know, there are a lot of football, American football teams with, you know, tons of analysts running around the building, but they're not paying any attention to them. And I'm sure that happens in every sport, essentially. Um, the, 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 the time that you got started – what, what data did you buy? Like, what was available in the world of soccer analytics at that time? So I was able to buy one full season of event data from Opta for the English Premier League, and it was the 2012-13 season, mm-hmm. and uh, which it, I believe recently concluded. So I'm now in my sixth or seventh year working on this stuff. 
Um, before that, I had been interested in it, and I'd done some work without event data where I just was looking at, um, you know, minutes played and results, things like that. I, I built a model to predict outcomes of World Cup matches that did pretty well. But when you get event data, then you're looking at 1,500 to 2,000 events per match with X and Y coordinates and timestamps and descriptors, and then you can get into more complex stuff. And people today have tracking data, and now uh, recently presented at a forum in London was looking at body orientation with a combination of video and data. So there's all sorts of stuff you can look at now. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about the details here. We, you know, we are mostly casual soccer fans. We, we get pulled in pretty enthusiastically about once every four years. Um, I wonder what simultaneously with that. Um, But, but we're also, you know, we're turned on by the potential with soccer analytics where we recognize there's a, there's increasingly, there's just a ton of data. It's rich data, but it's neat moment because you and others are basically inventing the stats that will be, you know, that'll become rote 10 years from now. So it's a really interesting moment. Can you give us a primer on the various measures that people are looking at? What has been considered rejected? What are, where do you think the field's going to go? Like, what is what when we are watching the game? What should we, we be looking at? If we at, want right? to watch it as analysts, what should we be looking at? Yeah, so we're starting to see some of these stats get incorporated into broadcast coverage. I would say that that moment where we were creating the stats that would become part of coverage probably happened a few years ago because right now analysts are going beyond that, and there's some question about whether the stuff that they're producing now, which is increasing in complexity, can actually be implemented in, inside a club or even in, in media and outside a club to, to the public. Real quickly, Dan, can you give us an example of that? So I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you're talking about something from motion tracking, so the, the, the computational and analytical processes required are pretty heavy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just to go back a little bit, when I got into this, there were people who were bringing analytics in from other fields, from other sports, uh, especially from hockey. Uh, ice hockey has a couple of stats called Corsi, yep. um, and uh, there's one which looks at total shot ratios. Uh, I more, more about sort of, of scoring, o- focusing on scoring o- opportunities as opposed to scoring events, basically. Yeah, and and. But unfortunately, the way that those were calculated uh, didn't really capture the game because uh, often you were looking at ratios instead of you know sums and 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 uh, you know we we shot shots basically are a number that increases one by one during a game and when you start looking at ratios then you start to obscure the sort of additive nature of the game and and then when you start right. to look at probabilities attached to scoring those shots then you need product so there was some there was sort of a computational problem with a lot of those and that problem was basically solved by statistics called expected goal and one of those is exactly what I just said. It's just the probability of a given shot being scored uh, using historical data from the same location and situation. And what I was able to bring into the field was something called ball progression expected goals, which basically says that at every location on the field where a team could have possession of of the ball, there's some probability of going on to score a goal. And when you move the ball, you change that probability, and that changes the expected goals from that possession. So we have these two expected goals paradigms now that are starting to really integrate themselves in the sport as a whole. One is the sort of shot creation expected goals, and the other is the ball progression expected goals. Doesn't it depend enormously on where the other players are? I mean, how do you make a decision on the expected goal given just the location of the ball or progression just on the location of the ball? So, we, you know, we try with 
event data to get as much information about the situation as we can into that. And often we're looking at proxies like phases of the game or where the ball come from came from to, to try and estimate where the other players might be. When we incorporate tracking data as well, then we know the location of every moving object on the field, uh, all the players, the ball, even the referees. So we can bring those two things together and get a much more refined model. What's interesting is actually when we start to bring those things in, we add some information, but maybe not as much as you'd expect. I think that the bulk of the information can still be gleaned even from the event data. Is that right? So you, you, you've, you've played with this with and without the, all the contextual stuff, and you're saying it's not that, this doesn't add that much explanatory power? No, it, it, you know, it adds some, but, but you know, the, the distance from goal and the angle on goal that the striker is facing that that's just huge. I mean, that just makes a huge difference uh, to to the success probability mm-hmm. of any shot, mm-hmm. and all the other stuff after that is is going to have a second order effect. So, can, can, can I just get a sense of the order of magnitude? What is the typical probability of success of a shot? It must be very very low because there's very little scoring. And but and 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 are there situations? In other words, are game ones be, one because of many 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 low probability shots, or are games one because of just a few very high probability shots? Well, there are teams that take both of those strategies, and some of them do it deliberately. And because it is a low-scoring sport, usually you'd rather have two 50% shots during a game than 10 10% shots. You know, both of those are going to add up to one expected goal, right, for the probabilities. But getting that first goal is so important that it doesn't really matter whether you go on to score nine more, right? So, so it's better to have the high-probability shots in general in this sport. But you tend to see teams that are really good teams have a lot of possession, and so they're able to take a lot of shots, high and low probability. The average shot is about 9 or 10% probability of scoring. So you just kind of pointed out uh, through that vignette, maybe a problem with this kind of phrasing thing as an, ex- as an expected goal framework for evaluating kind of probability of winning, because maybe 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 the outcome shouldn't be the number of ex- expected goals. It should be you know the probability of a goal. Or something like that, and, and and you're sort of saying that like you different things would be things would be weighted differently if you had that as your kind of objective. Well, what we can do is look at the expected goals from all the shots at, at, during a game, and then simulate, you know, using many iterations uh, to see what the most likely outcomes of the games would be if we always had those same shots during each iteration of our simulation. So, you know, one team gets 10 shots, the other team gets five. Okay, let's go through and a thousand times simulate this game where one team has 10 shots, the other team has five with the probabilities that are attached. We'll use random numbers to determine whether each shot is scored or not. And then we can come up with, you know, a percentage uh, likelihood of each outcome. You know, how likely is a 2-1 score? How likely is a 1-1 score? And this gives you a feel for exactly what I was just saying. You know, what's the likelihood of actually getting points from the game? Mm-hmm. Do you get a? This is Eric Brado. Do you get a sense, Dan, that uh, players, for example, let's imagine a zero-zero game somewhere in the second half, and a player says to himself, "You know, I've got. I could absolutely. I have a high risk shot here, but one that's possible. But I'm going to pass this up because I know this first goal is really worth a lot. Do you think there's any, or when they see a shot where they can possibly score, they take that opportunity? Do you actually see them saying, I know the importance of the first goal, and therefore I may pass up this shot for a better shot that's coming? Do you see any of that strategic thinking on players? So this is a really interesting area because it is possibly an area where analytics has led a change in the sport. 
we have seen over time the average shot value increase slightly and the shots mm. being taken closer to goal. If mm. you get shots closer to goal, you typically have to pass the ball more, hold on to possession longer to create that opening. And there are certainly teams where the coaching staff has looked at the analytics and said, we need to get closer, we need higher quality chances. We still see situations, especially on a corner, for example, where somebody's going to cross the ball into the penalty area and usually a defender's going to head the ball out and there'll be a midfielder standing on the edge of the penalty area just waiting to have a crack at that ball that's coming towards them off the head of a defender and trying to score from 25 yards out. That's a bad shot, but we still see it. So there are definitely players whose eyes get wide when they see an opportunity like that no matter what. But we're trying to cut down on things like that, and the coaching staff is trying is starting to integrate that into their strategy. You're starting to see, especially the better teams, try and hold on for better shots. The, the way you talk about that, you can't help but think about teams like the Houston Rockets and the NBA who were early adopters of analytics in terms of their implications for strategy on the court. So, Maury ball. So, layups and three points, and that's it. Are there leaders that we would notice watching? who adhere better to analytics-based insights than other clubs? Are there teams out there that are further along and actually translating it onto on-field? Well, I think that Leicester City, when they won the Premier League a few years ago, was a good example of that. I mean, analytics didn't win them the league, but it put them in a position where a little bit of luck could push them into that uh, championship spot. And they certainly used analytics to put the right pieces together in terms of their squad and also to develop a strategy that would maximize uh, the value of their squad. Now, that didn't happen in a vacuum. There was also coaching uh, that was heavily involved in that. Uh, Claudio Ranieri, the coach at the time, really figured out what his players were capable of and didn't try and, o- and overburden them with tactics that were too complex. Hmm. But the, the, you know, the analytics staff figured out a couple of things. One, that you didn't have to have a ton of possession in order to score goals. You needed to create, like I said before, a small number of high-value opportunities. Mm-hmm. And they also figured out uh, that you could, in some situations, um, you know, use a different formation from what teams had been used to seeing in order to destabilize them. We were at a time where a lot of teams in the league had been using a 4-2-3-1 formation, four defenders at the back, two central midfielders, three attacking midfielders, and one striker at the top. They came back with what had been a more traditional formation for many years, um, either a 4-2, or sometimes they would use three central defenders and four in the middle. And this was, I should say, three in the middle. And this was a bit of a sort of hawk among the doves when you think about it from a sort of evolutionary standpoint. You know, there there were all these doves in the league that were used to playing other doves. And all of a sudden, here comes a hawk with a totally different strategy, and it just eats everybody. So is is it translated into playing, people talk about teams that play direct. Were they playing more direct? And is this counter to, like, the classic Barcelona lots of passes kind of strategy? Am I thinking, is is that an oversimplification? That's right, yeah. Everybody was trying to emulate Barcelona or maybe Arsenal, these other teams that played very stylish soccer with a lot of touches. And these guys came and said, well, we don't necessarily have the tools to do that. And moreover, we think that these teams that are trying to play stylish soccer are vulnerable to an incursion of old-school direct soccer. <laughs> can, I, can I simplify this for, for a knucklehead like me who doesn't know much soccer? Are you essentially saying is that the, the, it become the, the practice to just pass the ball a lot? 
because it was Barcelona did that. They were very good at that. They controlled possession, but they didn't take that many shots or they didn't take many, that many good shots. And that what Leicester City decided to do was, we don't need to hold on to the ball. We just need to get it in a position to score. So go right at the right at the goal and don't pass between each other and then just try, try to create fewer opportunities. Maybe, I mean, more... more more better opportunities, but fewer overall, and then and that particularly works when I guess when you're the underdog. Am I getting any of this right, or is it just totally well, nonsense? Barcelona does create a lot of shots. The problem was the Premier League had 20 teams, and 18 of them were trying to be Barcelona, mm. and most of them can't. So uh, you had all these teams trying to follow this strategy, and they were leaving themselves open to exactly what you said, this very sharp, put the ball in position as quickly as possible, counterattacking style. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting situation because you wonder whether soccer is sort of cyclical. You know, it, it, this also happened in, a couple of years ago when Chelsea started to play uh, with uh, 4-3-3. And, I, I'm sorry, 3-4-3. So they had three at the back, four in the middle, three at the front. And then lots of other teams started to do this as well. And, and then, you know, you, 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 they won the championship and then everybody tried to emulate them. And now somebody else is going to come up with another strategy and they're right. going to win. Right, right. We're talking to Dan Altman. Dan is the founder of North Yard Analytics, a consultancy focused on soccer. He's been doing analytics work in soccer for years now after an academic career as an economist out of Harvard originally. You can follow Dan on Twitter, by the way, at NYA Sports. At NYA Sports is Dan's Twitter handle. I, I want to want to follow up and make an analogy to football. Uh, one of the things we noticed about when, oh boy, I just said football and I meant that there's a difference, um, that we noticed with the Patriots, with Belichick was brilliance in some levels to have more than one defense and sort of roll them out and depending on who he's facing and get everybody um, thinking something is different is going to happen. Is there something like that in soccer? I mean, can you notice if they're they're coming up with this particular style and we're going to just now try something else, a 4-3-4, four, four, whatever it is. Are, are teams, yeah, like are teams that flexible? Do, yeah, are they, is that possible? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean a, a very simple version of Audie's question is how much do teams change these kind of 4-4-3 four, four, type formations game to game? Well, there's a lot of difference in that uh, because there's a trade-off. One is if you keep playing the same formation, maybe your players will get better at it and more effective, a more oily machine, right? But the other possibility is every team's going to know what, what's coming when, when you go to play them. So we see a bit of both. Uh, if you have a really good team, then you can probably get them to learn two or three formations really well, and you can change in, even in the middle of a game. But we don't see that many clubs that are capable of that. Sometimes they'd rather do something simpler, like keep the same formation but switch the players from the left to the right. Uh, there are other ways to bring in a little variation. And, and maybe who you play? Is that who you, who you start versus who you bring in late? That well, kind just, of thing? Yeah, well, just, just one of the things we notice about, is it, is it possible for teams to kind of lose a few games early on, particularly if they, uh, if, if they have, if, if there's a play, I guess there really isn't a playoff in, in uh, soccer. I don't know how exactly where there's, there's a next round, I guess you go to. You know, they lose a few games just to get better at a few different strategies. Is that, is that something that, that they do? They experiment in the season. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that they would rather do it in preseason, but you often see that that's happening in, in the early part of the season, that they're trying out a couple different formations, especially if they've just incorporated a lot of new players. They may need to do that. Um, you know, Some soccer leagues have a playoff round, some don't, uh, but it's, it's always a relatively short season, uh, you know, 38 games for a 20-team league typically. And so you don't want to experiment too much, but you do have this second opportunity to incorporate players usually in January. 
So you may have big changes in your squad and then need to experiment a little bit again. Mm-hmm. Dan, Dan, just in the last few minutes here, let's. I, well, re, one, we really appreciate you letting us ask you all these like, like naive questions. We should do this every six months or so. Maybe we'll learn something about soccer eventually. Tell us about the Premier League this season. So Man City was such an overwhelming favorite coming in, and they've taken some unexpected losses. Liverpool's managed to have the lead, but they've squandered some opportunities. So it's all in all... Quite tight here with about a third of the season. As we take the corner to the thir- last third of the season, even Tottenham is hanging around. Do you? And then Man United, who was dead, you know, halfway through the season, they've been on this roll. Any insight or predictions for how things go down with the Premier League between now and the end of the year? Well, this late in the season, having a lead is usually quite telling in terms of who you expect to to win the trophy. So Liverpool are still in pole position. Um, there have been some questions about Manchester City's defending and whether they could sustain uh, some of the results they had early in the season. And some people would say they're regressing a bit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you've had injuries. And key, player, key players get injured and teams perform a little worse. And then when those players come back, you expect the teams to perform a little better again, something that we might see with Spurs. You know, they've had big injuries. They've had to piece together a midfield out of misfit toys. And so... <laughs> Um, you know, there there are lots of reasons to expect that this is going to get more exciting as we go down the stretch. Um, you know, City's in a position where they could win a lot of trophies this year if they could bring it home, um, but that also means there's a lot of stress on the squad. And uh, right, so they, they have to play more games essentially because they're they're active in so many different place places in different competitions. Yeah, you know, there's there's the European competition, there are the domestic cup competitions, which are knockout tournaments in addition to the league. Mm-hmm. And it's quite different from an American sport when you have a soccer team that could be involved in four different competitions almost throughout the whole season. It's just crazy. So, Dan, do you see, I'm looking at the top four teams, looking at their points. The thing that's striking to me is the top four teams all have a goals against. They're giving up less than one goal a game. Do you see that as, you know, is that going to be the future of soccer? Like, you know, as you know, the criticisms from the fan point of view is these really low-scoring games. Do you see any rule changes? Do you see anything going forward where maybe analytics helps the offense more than the defense? How do you see that progressing? You know, I would answer that question in the context of MLS here in the U.S. Um, You know, MLS is a league that is extremely concerned with the entertainment value of its product, right? They're trying Mm -hmm. to grow and they want to reach as many people as they can. And one of the things that we've seen recently in MLS is teams which now have a bit more leeway in how much they spend on their squads. Uh, are spending a lot more on attacking talent and really not that much on defending talent. Mm. And so in terms of the quality of attacking, it's gone way up in the past few years. The quality of defending, not so much. Um, so, you know, a result of that, you may see some more goals or you may see some, some teams that are easily outclassing other teams with their attacking talent. Uh, does that make it a more exciting product? Uh, you'll have to consult the TV ratings, but, but that's where we see the changes happen. In terms of making rule changes, like making the goal bigger or something like that in European soccer, I don't think it's going to happen. They are really hidebound to their history, and mm-hmm. I don't think that we would see anything like that. Mm-hmm. Terrific. All right. Listen, Dan, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for answering so many questions. We uh, wish you the best with your work. We hope to have you back again to talk more soccer down the road. Thanks a lot. I do encourage people to follow me on Twitter at NYA Sports because I'm going to have some really big stuff to show them in a couple of weeks. All right. All right. You heard it. Dan Altman at NYA Sports. He is the founder of North Yard Analytics. That's where the NYA comes from. He is a longtime economist before turning his eyes to the world of soccer analytics. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.